Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. Sarah, just for you to know, I'm a stylist. I was a stylist in Australia. I was doing great. I mean, I, you know, I moved up the ranks. I have done all the assisting. I've done everything that, you know, you're supposed to do at the beginning of your career. I get to LA and it's as if I have done nothing. I have to start all over again, assisting people. (sighs) Dealing with egos. Yes. Not looking at people in the eyes. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact with Ellen because she'll kill you. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, but I was going to say, we call it a freewheeling conversation, but often I want to call it a careening conversation because it's almost like we're careening, hanging around cliffs to stay on point until we're just, yeah, it's, but that's our favorite kind of conversation. That's how women talk. So here we're meeting with Sarah Khan, who is studying to be a marriage and family therapist, and is also a budding stand-up comedian. And then I'm going to let Sarah, you tell how we met. And then we'll like back it up. And I want to hear about your family background and stuff. Okay. So to start, this is how Alex and I met. I started law school fall of 2020. And in the pandemic, during the pandemic. So this was over Zoom. Law school over Zoom, okay? <laughs> context. Paint the picture of the room, which was my bedroom. So like I'm on my, I open up my laptop and there's a hundred students where like the professor to call our name to present the facts of the case. So yeah, I, I was very gung-ho about wanting to go to law school. I put a lot of pressure on myself. I just thought it would be badass to have that title. I don't know, every day just I was procrastinating like a lot more than I normally do for tasks. And that started making me feel a lot of anxiety. So every day I just feel super anxious in class. I wasn't prepared. I was getting by, but I knew that this wouldn't last and things would come crashing down. If I have a final for something I'm not prepared on, I'm going to tank it. So that's when I started just ruminating. I was in a thought loop. Am I going to drop out? I was like so anxious about even getting accepted to law school. The moment I got accepted, I was bawling like a baby. All right, I have to, I want to interrupt and ask a question. Did your parents want you to go or was it self-inflicted pressure? Self-inflicted, but inflamed by my parents once I like presented the idea to them. Okay. They didn't think, nobody in my family thought I was an, an academic at all. So me getting in was like, oh, you did that? You got in? What? I thought you were going to be a housewife. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot going on. We'll have to unpack that one soon. (laughs) Here, let me just quickly get to the point of how we met so we can unpack the rest of this. I was contemplating dropping out and I needed somebody to lean on, somebody that, that I thought was wise, someone who I could really speak to. And I heard through the grapevine from all the students that people were just talking about you like a lot. Oh my God, Professor Detalia is so cool, this and that. So I just immediately knew that we would vibe. So I emailed you and I just kind of was naked with my feelings. And I just felt like I could do that. That's why I did that, you know? And we had a really interesting conversation and I think we just really clicked. And I told you my entire story in that first conversation and you now did, really yeah 
And I don't regret the decision at all. I just have to say it was so nerve wracking because when a student calls you for help, like academically, and you're over Zoom too, so you can't really read energy. And she's really telling me she kind of wants to quit. But it's six weeks into law school. So a part of you wants to be like, well, wait a minute, you should stick with it. It's only six weeks. It's only this. And I was like, what kind of damage? I remember getting off the the call and I was like, Eric, what's going on? My like, I'm just telling people to leave law school because you're the second person that week. Whoa. Whoa. Because there was somebody else, a, a second year student or a third year student who wants to be a YouTube star, whole different story. But I was, well, you know, you can't, it's not like you're going to be a YouTube star at 60. You can always go back to law school. So go embrace trying to be a YouTube star. And I'll I mean, I really did tell Eric, I'm going to get fired because I'm just like, people are dropping like flies. <laughs> but no, but it was so clear you had other dreams that you had this idea of what law school was and none of it really met your expectations. You weren't in your place and now you're in school again. Yeah, I am. Part of my reasoning for wanting to even go to law school was to help alleviate people of emotional distress and they always say lawyers kind of double as therapists for their clients. So it just made sense to me. Like I had to just really hone in on why law school. They were asking us that like weekly being first year law students. And so I kept thinking about the emotional aspect and I thought about it. I really anchored in on that idea and I thought, oh, I want to be a damn therapist. That's what therapists do. I want to talk to people. I want to be vulnerably naked with people and help them like, you know, unravel their emotions and help them see things clearer. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in school for four years reading cases from 1970 something and then trying to make my point based off of that precedent. You know, I want to connect one-on-one with individuals based on my knowledge and experience and their knowledge and experience right there. Wow. What made you want to help people like about with emotional distress anyway? Like what was that impetus for you? So I got a cocktail. I need to take a sip to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to. All right. So you're going to do that. Watch this. I am texting Eric, my partner. I came into the house, everybody, because my internet's bad. So now I'm in the house. Oh, you, asked, are you having wine? Because I'll grab a glass too. Grab a glass of wine. I just asked Eric for bourbon. So he's <laughs> going to bring me in a little cocktail. Excellent. This is an Oregon Pinot Noir. So, you know, for me, that's special. All right. I think I'm just having like a really boring, boring maker's mark bourbon, Ooh, but still bourbon. is. I love bourbon. It tastes like childhood Christmas. Ooh. Bourbon is sexy. My mother thought whiskey with scotch was sexy. So it is. And it's my mom's birthday tomorrow. So I'm having the bourbon in honor of my mother. So what are you drinking, Sarah? I am drinking gin and seven up. Is there strawberry in there? strawberries and there's a piece of lavender. I I don't make drinks. I have to hide any alcohol in my house because I'm Muslim. So this oh. is my first time making a cocktail. I just threw stuff together that I thought would look cool. <laughs> so where do you keep the alcohol in your house? In my closet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So it's like you turn, so as, as a practicing Muslim, you turn 21 can drink, but the alcohol still stays in the closet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh God, I I could never, I would fail at that religion. I would just fail at that religion. 
Italians, Italian Catholics drink. Yeah, I fail at any religion. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) me too, but that is a whole other thing. What are you shaking, Lenya? So this is an aerator because, you know, I'm a wine snob, so I have to aerate and I didn't have time to decant, you know, and so I have this special machine that aerates the wine. Oh my God. I'm a snob. Come on. You know this about you are, me. You are too bougie for, for Harlem. I'm too bougie for Harlem. My cousins will That's listen. That's the name of an album cover, by the way. That is, <laughs> that is your, yes. that's the album. My cousins will get on here and be like that bitch, you know, <laughs> bitch. but here's to you, Sarah, and making the right life choices. Thank you. Cheers. And to Alex helping you. Yeah. It's so brave. It's so brave and freeing to quit. Mm. Quitting is powerful. Yes. So I'm proud of you. All right. So let's unpack. Now you've had the sip of the cocktail. Secretly, do you need to like, where is the rest of the family where you're in the room? So I have it good in a weird way. It's just me and my mom and she works like in the evenings till like late at night. So we're fine. (laughs) Okay, because otherwise I worry you would be like, you know, sliding down in between your bed and the wall, whispering (laughs) into the microphone. Okay, mom's going to the bathroom now. (laughs) I have too much anxiety, so I plan this strategically. All right. Okay, well, that's fair enough. So, And when we go offline, I'm going to talk to you about some comedy schools in case you really do want to practice. Yes. Absolutely. I took a couple of courses just so that I could be more comfortable talking to people. Yeah. You did? I didn't know that about you. Uh, Ages ago. Ages ago. I'm a UCB person. Well, I love UCB. I once went to a stand-up show with Lenya where she almost got in a fight with somebody. That's where I saw the little Bronx woman come out. She's Lenya's five foot tall. She did not like this level of jokes that were going on. They were pretty, not appropriate. They were not appropriate. They were really sexist, racist jokes from this one comic. And she was just, she was mouthing off. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh, I was like this. Like, I was just. <laughs> I'm that heckler that will tell you. I'm the heckler. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway. You know this is 2021. We shouldn't. All right. You know. But that was 2016. But anyway. Anyway, Sarah, it's about you. See, we careened. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, why did you want to help people? Because I do want to know. I, okay, so throughout childhood, like since I had an understanding of my own consciousness, I was just always so uncomfortable, just emotionally. And I think that now that I'm older and I'm like just looking at it in retrospect, I think I just had really bad codependency traits where other people's emotions were mine and I had no sense of self. So I was constantly just depressed or anxious, like even in like kindergarten, you know? Wow. And I think the reasoning for that, where it rooted from was my mom's own mental health issues because she had an arranged marriage at 17, Mm. got a divorce, then married my dad. That was also an arranged marriage. They got divorced. Then she married my dad's best friend. They got divorced. It's like divorce. And I was always just, there was no sense of me. My parents never talked to me as a person. It was just problems every time they spoke to me. or Yeah, just tons of conflict. And I just never developed a sense of self is what I'm realizing 
everything that I'm telling you right now is these are new realizations. Like I just realized the whole codependent stuff like a, a week ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so your first generation, where did your family come from? Pakistan. And they came straight out to LA. Okay. So do you have a lot of extended family here? Yeah, there's a whole community. And with something like that, like if you're a Muslim, doesn't really matter what from what culture, but like when there's an extended community of that same culture and religion, and you want to do things that don't align with that culture or religion, you have to live a double life and hide your stuff. So that's another added element of my stress since I was a kid. So all the, the combination of all those things, it was just so uncomfortable living in my head that I needed some kind of relief. And when I did go through therapy, yeah. I'm on the other side of it. I want to provide that same relief for someone else whose uncomfortability is like unbearable. I can only imagine. So was your mom, when you told your mom that you were quitting law school and going to school to be a therapist, did you share all this with her? Or did you just say, hey, mom, change of plans, change of grad school plans? I am so vocal about my emotions, like to a fault. So even if it's my mom, that's like the cause of it, because I live with her and she's just there all the time. I'm very verbal about that stuff. So she saw me work through my problems. She's seen me work through my problems. So I have to verbalize what I'm going through to get it out and reflect on it and then fix it. So she saw my growth. So when I broke the news to her, it actually made sense to her. She's you could actually be good at that. So I was like, oh, damn. Okay. And even if she kind of like shit on that idea. I don't really trust her judge. I don't, I grew up with this complex of not wanting to trust other people's judgment when it comes to my own stuff, which is why I have that like rebellion attitude. Where do you think that comes from though? It's a really interesting thing to always have, which I think Lenya and I also have similar reactions. So like, where do you think that comes from for you? I think it comes from being involved in such a misogynistic culture and seeing the, the reactions from the, like the women that are so deep in that culture don't realize what's happening and they just swallow it and swallow it. And it seeps out in other areas of their life and they're constantly miserable. And they'll blame it on things like my luck is bad or God wrote life for me to be this way. It's just written in the book and that's how it's going to be. But no, you have the agency to change that. You're just stuck in a really bad misogynistic culture that doesn't serve you in any way. So that's where my rebellion comes from. Yeah. Do you think that as a young woman, do you feel, do you understand like sort of the concept of rage? Is there rage engaged in that rebellion or no? Yeah, big time. And I'm trying to, I need to work on that because since I was little, even just with socializing or dating, that's one personality trait that people pick up on quicker than they do on other parts of me. And I always have felt so insecure about that because I feel like I have a lot more to offer. But rage is the first thing that comes through, especially when it comes to meeting. Because I, this thing I'm about to say, I want to keep for another part of this podcast because it's very deep and it's something I realized recently. I have a lot of trauma around men, and that trauma has manifested itself into rage. So it doesn't matter what man is talking to me, I meet them with the same aggression each time. So what I recently learned is that. I've been angry at men for so long that I don't know how else to relate to them besides meeting them with anger. So they could say hi in a nice way, but I'll view it through their lens of you're being a misogynist, you're a pervert, and you probably are going to do something highly inappropriate. So I just put down the hammer before they even do something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. Like, do you, 
you said later in the podcast, but I'm going to just go ask now. So uh, is that coming from the familial household of, I mean, you, you in quick succession talked about three, like your father, but being, there also being two other uh, father figures in your life. Is that where the trauma stems from? So my mom was married to somebody else before my dad. I didn't know that man. So the two men that I knew were obviously my dad and then my dad's best friend. So the conflict between that, they were, just to give it to you concisely, they were very absent. Even though they were married to my mom, they were just always absent. So that's kind of normal though, isn't it? Like Sarah, like men are meant to go outside the work and the women take care of the children. Not in that sense. It was very like, my dad would constantly say, I don't know why I married you. I don't want to be here type thing. So it was very like, like that. Not, oh, we're a team. We're going to tackle this housework together, but I'm going to go outside and do it. Not like that. And then my dad's best friend that got married to my mom, my stepdad, he didn't actually like legally marry my mom. He had a whole family. He had a wife. He just kept my mom as like a side wife. (laughs) Oh my God. For men, like my idea of men was we're going to use you for your body and then see ya. Bye. That's just yeah. what I've seen consistently. And I've seen so much disrespect around it. And then I'm, I'm um, involved with a culture that says a man's place is here and a woman's place is here. Women are should be in the kitchen cleaning and cooking and a man will take care of you. So the contrast of the a man will take care of you and like them actually not doing that. And then me being told what my role is and how I need to be soft-spoken and wear a hijab and just be very like, okay, I don't know, obedient to men. That just kind of, yeah. I ended up on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the rage. It's full on rage. (laughs) I could imagine that's got to be really hard. Where did your mother as the immigrant is really confronting this in a different way every day than you as a first generation American, how did she try to bridge that gap for you? Or is there a source of tension? Because she's saying, Sarah, why not marry early? Why not just have children? Why are you striving to, in a way, you're going to be a polymath in the way as you're going to be a comedian and you're going to be a therapist. You're going to do both. How was that? Did you feel like that whole choice was rebellious? This idea of me hating men and starting to actually realize it, realize this and turn inwards, that's my trauma speaking. And it's not who I am. That's not all of me, even though I end up expressing that inadvertently. I bring all of that up because in my comedy, I'm trying to progress in comedy. Like I need to, I'm like in the infancy stages. I'm not great. I'm, I suck. I'm just going to say that. That's respect <laughs> to get better. And, uh, <laughs> I got feedback from a very close friend. I took her to an open mic with me two nights ago. And oh my God, like watching your own recording back is, it makes you want to vomit. It's like the worst (laughs) thing ever. And so I got off the stage and I felt like I was on top of the world. I felt like nobody could mess with me. I felt so good because I got laughs. I got laughs, in my opinion, consistently throughout the thing where I wanted laughs, but right. When me and my friend went to go get a, a glass of wine and talk about it and give each other harsh feedback, because that's what we need to do. She was like, you were just hurling insults at the men. I don't understand. Like, why are you doing that? I'm like, what do you wow. mean? I thought laughter was the whole point. I, I, and I told you earlier, like, 
the thing that people notice about me first, like the moment I walk into the room is, oh, she's mad. And I always get offended at that because I'm like, no, I'm not because I don't even see it. I'm blind to it. But when I rewatched the video, it still felt good. I did get the laughs. It's not like I was totally delusional, but I saw how I finally started seeing what other people meant because I never saw it before until that night. And I I was crying because I was like, oh, crap, because my friend was like, you have so much more to offer in your comedy besides the man hate change it. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Wow. <laughs> it Comedy is trauma is what I've learned when you're an artist. Yep. Whatever, Cause artists, I think when you're creating something I've learned very recently, when you're creating something, it comes from your complete truth, your essence of your being. It's who you are. And I let my trauma get the best of me and yeah, I am getting laughs, but those are not the kinds of laughs that I want. But, but Sarah, let me just tell you something. Lucille Ball was one of the most depressed per- people in the world. You know what I'm saying? You'd be surprised. I actually know a comedian who, you know, she is extremely funny on stage. And when she come, when she's on TV and film, she is just hilarious. But her personal life, she is so complex and, and difficult. And you know what I mean? So don't take it too much to heart because that trauma that you're talking about can become, you know what I mean? Like it, it could be the who you are, but it, it's not going to uh, affect your comedy. Sometimes the the funniest people are the most damaged. Do you know what I mean? Remember, like when I tell you, Lucille Ball was not a pleasant person, <laughs> yeah. and yet one of the funniest people of her time. Yeah. I think though, for me, it's not just the comedy that I'm like, I need to get better at that. It's my life. And I've learned that <laughs> yeah. it's not serving me at all. I've never been in a relationship and I have, I'm going to school for therapy. So I'm of course interested in reading up on attachment styles. I've never been in a relationship because I'm anxious avoidant. And if you were to just watch what I do when I go on a date or when I interact with men, it could be a TV show and it would make you cry and laugh equally as hard at the same time because you would in my head as someone who's anxious avoidant with the codependency traits that I have relationships are my biggest insecurity and I also act like I don't give a shit about them so it's a constant push and pull which leads me nowhere so when I get on stage and I try talking about these things I think it's funny because I have the energy and I'm like loud and crazy about it but I'm not actually saying intelligent things. I'm kind of just like, blah, angry. (laughs) That just means you're finding your story. I mean, you're sort of beginning, right? So you just have to like, you know, even when I'm writing or even like working with a client, like even today, like working with somebody, it's this perfectly beautiful little story, but I was like, well, let's get underneath at the why. And then underneath the why, let's get at the show. What's something that shows this in action. And so the idea is you have all that and you're right. You can, there are insult comedians, right? I mean, so where that's what they do and that's, and I would imagine in today's 2021 Me Too world that having women be insult comedians would actually be kind of trendy. Do you know what I mean? Because it is, you know, it's like men have been doing it for so long. Oh yeah. But the idea is then if you can actually unpack that and go deeper, holy shit, that would be amazing. Not only for you as a human, but also as you go on that journey, 
Because what I love the best about comedians who just take us on their therapy journey, do you know what I mean? Who are just like out there and saying, okay, here I am a work in progress and here it is. You know, those are the comedians I've always liked best. I always hesitate to talk about Louis CK because I feel like we can't talk about Louis CK anymore because he, you know. Masturbates in front of women. Yes. (laughs) There's probably a lot of other comics we all love that have done that, but have not been caught yet. So no, absolutely. But I mean, he felt like to me, he was like, he spoke for my generation. I found him funny too. Yeah, no, I think he spoke for a Gen X generation. I'm very sad about it. So, you know, that that's just, I think, unfortunately, our generation. We're fucked. We're We're depending on you, Sarah. Yeah. So (laughs) all the pressure is on you. Mm. How does all of this like work with your culture of being Pakistani American? It's really interesting because I think of it from two different perspectives. My individual perspective And then the perspective of the collective, right? Where is it just me internalizing how bad it is if I wear a shirt that's like too tight or it's like, it's like an enmeshed thing of, I care about what the community thinks, but what about what I want? And I I bring that up because I am living the double life. I hide all my stuff. I don't go public on Instagram because I post risque photos of me in certain outfits where more than my ankles are showing, you know, and I see other women that come from the same background as me and they just do whatever they want willy nilly and their parents are standing next to them and their prom photos and they're wearing a dress and it's just well, we, our parents went to the same mosque, church, Muslim church. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think it's just my parents that are hyper sensitive about it because they don't drink, they don't do drugs, they don't sleep around, they don't date. So their vice was their religion. And when they had their nasty divorce, they needed to grip onto something. So I think they took that energy and just threw it on me and my brother and told us you have to do these things, or we're going to beat the shit out of you. I don't know. I don't know. I want to break free one day. But I do have the fear of the repercussions it's going to have because my extended family like if I have a cousin that married outside of her race or someone was caught on a date with a a guy from a different race, like they talk about it a lot. I'm not going to lie. This pandemic was actually comfortable for me because I don't have to see anyone or hear any of these stories or lower. There's a lower risk of stories about me being told, you know, that's so stressful. How does that manage when you date? Do you just date secretly? So that's also something that came up earlier this week for me, like a realization of I auditioned for this dating reality show and they were asking questions like, so tell us about your dating life. How many boyfriends have you had? Who are the five exes in your life that you still want? And I'm like, I don't even have one. What are you talking about? How many times? (laughs) I don't know. They're just asking all kinds of questions. And I'm just like, listen, I grew up Pakistani. I've never been able to do that. And the casting director that was speaking to me, she goes, I grew up Pakistani too. What do you mean? So I, that even that is where I was like, it's me internalizing the hell out of this shit because yep. this woman is living her life. And why can't you live yours? Why can't I live mine? Why can't I live mine? It actually, I was mad at myself for that. But at the same time, I maybe, I don't know. It goes back to the codependency thing. If my mom is wigging out about something, I think I really just internalized it so badly sure. that I... Well, are you the oldest? Are you the oldest child? No, I have an older brother. You have an older brother? It's interesting just because, you know, usually it's the oldest child that really over-identifies with the parent. Yeah, I mean, but 
I have some questions. I have some questions. So with this relationship with your mother, you're an adult now, right? You're over 21. Could you talk to her? Could you try to talk? Like, I mean, already, but you're shaking, you're shaking your head, but you left law school. You are now in grad school in a different in situation. She understood you, you are constantly processing your thoughts and your emotions with her. You're vocalizing. You said that. Why do you think that you can't talk to her about this? Is this on you? Is this something that you feel I can't talk to her, but it's not actually the case? Is this something that you have internalized? Yes, but I've at least overcome that stage of it. So I talked to her openly. I tell you, I hide alcohol in my closet. She's found alcohol bottles and she didn't question me about it. I hide the alcohol I wear. When I wear certain clothes, I put on a something that's similar to a burqa before I leave the house. And I do that. She knows she's very well aware of what I'm actually doing when I'm not home and in secrecy. But I just, to save her the like, ooh, the cringiness of seeing me do something, I hide it. Is it like a little respect? To it, is, it is. Absolutely. And I always, t- I always have to tell her, and I hate that it is this way because it's really annoying. I just give her the assurity that, if I'm going to go on a date, if I'm going to wear a bikini, I'm going to do it in Tulum, not 10 minutes away from our house so that there's that risk of somebody seeing me. Because what's funny is I've gotten to the stage with her where she knows everything that I do. She knows I'm not a virgin. She knows everything. But the last thing that's left that gives her some kind of comfort is that she'll even say this herself. Just make sure you don't get caught doing anything. Okay. Wow. Just pretend it's not happening and we're fine. That's so unhealthy. I know. So unhealthy for both of you though. I want to move out, but it's an enmeshed relationship and that our finances are so enmeshed and screwed up that I can't move. You know, when you become roommates with someone, you can't just leave that causes problems. But if you find a roommate on Craigslist, it's easier to do that than if it's your mom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm stuck. And right now, and this is a new thing that's happening that's also driving me insane, is that the roles are reversed. Usually in our culture, my mom would be looking to find me a husband and then get an arranged marriage ready for me. But she knows I'm not going to do that. And she also knows that I'm not her son or her husband, so I'm not going to financially support her. I need to go figure out my own life. Actually... I take that back. I think Pakistani parents still want daughters to take care of them financially. I don't know. I'm not going to do it. I, I'm not doing that. Not right now. Maybe when I'm 50, I'm not doing that crap right now. Cause she, I don't want to get into that tangent, but what I'm trying to say is she is on Muslim dating websites, trying to find another husband simply because, and this has been verbalized to me many times. And it, it, this is like a cause part of a cause of my depression is that, She says, well, if you guys aren't going to take care of me financially, I need to find a husband. And it just drives me absolutely insane because she'll then tell me, can you message these guys for me? Because I don't know what to say. And I just, I can't. So you're messaging on dating sites to get your mom married. Yeah. Wow. Actually, I argue with her because I just don't want to do it. Because since I was five, I've dealt with her marriage problems, as I was telling you. And it's just, I know I'm not doing that. I actually wow. refuse to message any of these men. So where's your brother? He's supposed to be doing, he's the older, he's the elder. 
he's, he's that's what everyone's reaction is when they he's hear he's a this, boy but, he's not doing any of it yeah but a boy he's yes he's the boy but in that isn't it in that culture i mean isn't that yeah. what it is there's a reason for that so my brother and i grew up separated because when my parents got divorced they got divorced when i was five and that stepfather figure took care of me and my mom my brother was with my dad so i think my brother has a vengeance or like some sort of Mm. against me and my mom and probably women in general. So he has, is he married recently divorced? Wow. Divorce is a trait in your family. This, he told me two weeks before his wedding, I don't want to get married. You guys are making me get married. He said you as in like involving me. It's just such shit. I need to get away from these people. I just don't know how. (laughs) Oh my God. I feel like now it feels like Lenya and I are going to need to like figure out an an escape route for you. I'm like totally already on it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on it. Wow. You know, this is reminding me of, I I know this is going to, we're going to go off on a tangent, but when I was in early on in, in college, a friend of ours, like it was a small group of us. There was three or four of us. And I guess we were a clique. And one of the girls in the clique had a really possessive mother, you know, like with the mom was just like, wouldn't let her do anything. She would have to lie just for us to go and have like study dates and things like that. I mean, it was just a very strange relationship. And then one weekend, I don't know how, but she managed to get away. And we went up the coast to Jersey and we were staying in the shore at a friend's house and we drove and it was like, great. And it was just girls just want to have fun. And then we came back and she was dropping us off at the college parking lot for all of us to get in our cars and go back home. And her mom was in the parking lot when we arrived and the fear that she had was I could feel it. I could feel it in my soul. And at that moment, all of us plotted on how we were going to help her escape. It took seven months. Wow. Yeah. It took seven months to convince her because really she's not, I mean, it's not like her mom was like chaining her. You're not chained to the door. It was convincing her that she was strong enough to leave. Even if her mother was never going to speak to her again, which of course never happens. It's always such a hard thing to do. And when you're young, everything just seems so... We were 20, not even, we weren't even 20. We were like 19 or 18. We were 18. And so, yeah, I remember. And and your stories just brought up this memory that I think I don't even, I didn't even remember until this very moment, how I felt her fear and how we were like, we're going to help her. We got to help her because we, what is sisterhood for if we're not there to help her become who she wants to be? Yeah. That's so beautiful. Don't even know where she is now. (laughs) Well, I'm really, and I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that her life just got amazing, but I don't even remember what happened. It's so, but these kinds of, when you talk about the community, Sarah, like what's interesting to me and it's always fascinated me is like the immigrant community. So it isn't, you're right, because it's not necessarily Pakistani and it's not necessarily Muslim. It's partly just like whatever community, often an immigrant community, but my father's family had, were very Catholic and had very strict rules about and I don't even know where they came from. Right. But they were like, girls couldn't date until they were 16. Girls couldn't get their ears pierced until they were 16. And I just remember, 
I, when I was a freshman, a junior, I guess, asked me out and it was a big conversation because he had a car, you know, and so we were going to go on a car date and I was only in ninth grade and my parents decided to trust me. It was this big, it was a big family sit down. It was humiliating. Let's have a big (laughs) discussion about the reasonability of, you know, Alexandra having a date with Drew D'Elmo, who, you know, in his blue, with his blue Pontiac, whatever it was. And so they agreed to let me go. And then my, and then here's the thing, like, I guess somebody told somebody in the family, it was a big Italian American family. And my mother gets a call from both my grandmother and my aunt saying, Detalia girls don't date until they're 16. Like trying to enforce the rule. Mm-hmm. And then you would have loved my mother because she hung up the phone on them. So she <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> amazing. But there was so much strife in the family, right? But there was this concept, and she told stories, and they were first generation American, right? They told stories of like my mother in the 60s, mini, the mini skirts were in and the sheer mm. blouses. And so I guess my mother wore a kind of sheerish blouse and a mini skirt to meet my dad's family. And I, I mean, she tells the story like as if they thought mm. she was a whore because how could she wear the, those clothes? It's crazy. And then she went to Catholic school and they had have these stories. You would have to wear Mary Jane's, you know, their little patent leather sh- flat shoes but you would have to scuff the tops of them because if they were too shiny, you could see up to a girl's underwear. Oh my God. (laughs) But like all the rules, you know what I mean? And it's all coming from fear. Yeah. You know what I mean? All the rules that I just told you about was all based in control. And the control was from fear. And it is based in misogynistic rules. It just is. How was it for you? So this is the thing. You went to New York and to Miami. The last time I saw you, you were in Miami at a pool bar drinking drinks. And Miami's so much fun. Did did you like it? Did you like Miami? I did. I had such a good time, but I was paranoid about the pandemic the whole time. Because like, I'm traveling solo, so it's not like I have my own crew to mingle around with. But I also can't mingle with strangers because the virus and yep. people in Miami are not, you know, cream of the crop people <laughs> when it comes to the They're like pandemic. What pandemic? Exactly. <laughs> they might be good in other ways. You know, they might have strengths in other areas, but not being safe in a pandemic. That's not there. Were they m- wearing masks? Cause there's no, no mask mandate. You were talking like three inches from your face. If you didn't yell for them to stay away, like nobody has boundaries out there. It was really irritating. So I was just like, okay, I'm just going to not talk to people. And I love talking to people. So for me, that was just something that I was thinking about too much while trying to also enjoy the scenery of Miami and what it looks like and the, just the feeling in the air. And you know that song by Will Smith, Miami? Welcome to like, Miami. Exactly. That's, that was the whole vibe. And I love that part of it. <laughs> Did you go to like the art wall and do any of the art walks? I did not make it there in time because I was only there for three days. And by the time I got there, it was like, I went, I went like very late at night to that area. And yeah. The best donuts in the world are there. Oh, really? Yeah. Let's all <laughs> meditate on the best donuts. 
I because that just sounds amazing. So, Sarah, what is the most what is the scariest thing you've ever said in one of your stand up open mics? The scariest thing I've ever- that you've ever had to reveal. Okay, so this might not be the best one, but it's what's coming to mind at the moment. I often will talk about this is scary in, in itself. I often will talk about how my dating life revolved around Tinder primarily because it was easy and it's, I get to control who I'm speaking to and just, I get to vet them on social media and Google. Do they know anyone that I know? And they likely won't because they're not Pakistani, you know? So (laughs) from 18 to 22, 23, Tinder rampage. I went on so many Tinder dates. I've lost count. And I think the scariest thing that I've told on stage was about a specific Tinder date. This actually happened to be another Muslim guy that I, I was like, he's hot enough. I don't care if he's Muslim. I don't care if we're <laughs> from the same community. He went to the same high school as my brother. I don't care. Nobody's going to know. Nobody knows who I am. Right. You know, I don't know. I just was in that delusion. And I had just turned 21 and I didn't drink because drinking or doing anything. I had to hide it so much that it was a hassle, but I was in college at this time. So I was like living in a dorm room at UCLA. I live in LA. Why did I do the dorm to get the hell out of Torrance? You know, of course, of course. <laughs> so I did that. And I remember I drove to Orange County from UCLA to go see this man. And we just drank and drank. He poured, I remember when I got to his apartment, he poured a tall glass of Ciroc. We were just drinking that. The Uber picks us up. We go to this bar club, whatever, in downtown Fullerton and cut to, and this is a scary part. I woke up in a closet. It's actually really romantic. <laughs> no, it isn't. Oh my God. No, Sarah, no, that's not romantic. Let's no, that isn't out. romantic, Sarah. <laughs> in the context of me having to hide everything I do and the person that I was trying to date and how it played out, <laughs> or in my head at the time. It okay, was- wait, so slow down. How did you end up in, did you? Yeah, How did you, end you up blacked out. What what happened? I blacked the hell out. So, <laughs> and did he roll you in the closet, or did you put yourself in the closet? <laughs> I I put myself in the closet. So here's the thing: is that before we even started drinking, the moment I got into his apartment and we were doing the little small talk and all that stuff, he had told me that if we're gonna drink heavy tonight, just know you can stay here. I will give you my room and I'll sleep on the couch. That's the last thing I remember him saying in his apartment because then it was like, it was just like cut to bar and then we're inside the bar because right. that's how we were drinking. <laughs> just shots oh. constantly. And honestly, we're having such a good time. I don't know if it was just in my head like it was a movie because I was drinking so much, but like everybody around us was cheering us on. I've been there. I have too. I remember him carrying me up the stairs of his apartment building and I he put me in the bed. I vaguely remember that. And I know he was on the couch because here's what happened. When I gained consciousness, I was chest down and like head to the side and my hand was gripping something really tightly. So I look over and I I look at my hand, I start ungripping it and I'm looking at what, what the hell am I gripping so tight? What the hell is that? And it was a gym shoe full of vomit to the brim. My pants were down. I was trying to go to the bathroom because I didn't want to vomit in this nice man's bed. He has a walk-in closet and a bathroom right next to each other. So it was just a game of which door. And I went into his walk-in closet and I freaking vomited everywhere. This is why I said it was romantic because here's the thing. 
I blacked out, but I'm coming to, and the first thing I'm thinking after realizing I destroyed his closet is I really like this guy. I had a great time. He's like nobody I've ever met before. There's something there. I really like this man. What the fuck did I do? How do I fix this? And how do I fix this quickly? So I take the shoe because the shoe is where the majority of the vomit is. Thank God. It was actually, I didn't ruin the whole closet. There was like a small spot of vomit in the corner and the rest of it was contained in the shoe. Shoe is my major priority right now. I go to the bathroom, dump it out in the sink, start undoing the shoelaces, hand soap. It's a man's bathroom, so he doesn't really have any toiletries. <laughs> we have much to work with besides toilet paper as like a rag. That's not going to help me. So, <laughs> ooh, and I didn't even get that far. All I did was dump it out into the sink and he starts banging on the door. Yo, are you okay? Are you okay? He hears the ruckus, I guess, you know? So I'm like bracing myself. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm just like, he's going to see it. I got to face the music. He's going <laughs> to see it. What is this man going to think of me? And I'm like accepting the fact that fuck, I ruined another good thing in my head, right? Waking up in this dude's closet. I ruined another, damn, it's never going to work for me. Whatever. So I faced that. And then I was like, you can come in. <laughs> he comes in the room. He sees what happened. He grabs my hand and he says, it's totally fine. And then he takes the shoes, both of the shoes, and he puts them in a trash bag. He says, I don't even use them. You're fine. Just show me where you threw up. We're all clean it up in the morning. You're fine. Here, go back into bed. And then he goes back out to the couch. And then some time passes and he knocks on the door again. And he politely says, hey, listen, I'm really sorry. But do you mind if I sleep next to you in the bed? Not anything weird. The couch is just really uncomfortable. And it was a really uncomfortable couch. So he slept next to me. And then, and I'm going to end this part of the story here. We wake up next morning and he's all like ready to go to the gym. And he's, as he's leaving, I wake up and then he's like handing me his house keys because he's, hey, stay as long as you want. I'm going to go to the gym, do some errands. I'll bring back food, whatever. Stay as long as you want. Here are my house keys. And then as he's leaving, he freaking turns around and he's like on the freaking door frame, just like being all sexy and stuff. And he's damn. And after all that, you still look fine. And 21 year old me was like, like there's like vomit crusted up (laughs) part of my hair is not how it should be it was bad it was so bad and this guy I just had an instant connection with him or I mean I never yeah what what happened are you two in still in touch this one ended very tragically in my opinion because it ties back to all the stuff we've been talking about my history he was the one Muslim guy I did anything like that with, or that I even had a connection with, right? He's Muslim and he was drinking. Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He went to the same high school as my brother, is what I wanted to just reiterate, because that's why it ended, is that somebody found out that him and I were talking, and somebody took it as a threat, and this somebody is a family friend, a third person. This man's best friend, who's also best friends with my brother, okay? So this third person thought that it's not going to be a good idea if my brother finds out that I'm messing around with this dude, my brother's going to want to fight the guy or some, I don't know. He just took it upon himself, this character. And he told the dude that, Oh, are you dating somebody named Sarah? Because she, she's kind of crazy. And she's telling people, including her own brother, that you took her virginity and that you said you're going to marry her. And let me tell you this guy's logic when he said this, he's trying to protect his friend and he's being loyal to his friend to prevent something to preemptively stop 
my brother from doing something. It was just so much drama. But basically, I didn't even know any of this. Here's how it ended. Me and this guy were seeing each other for two months consistently every weekend. Then suddenly I get blocked on all social media platforms. I'm at school, UCLA. I, I'm putting this behind. My abandonment issues are kicking in and I'm telling myself oh, is what it is. It's me. It's my luck. I'm just unlovable. That's what I'm telling myself. Like that I'm ugly. I don't know what it is. People just don't like me. I got to forget about this. So my finals come up for fall quarter, second year of UCLA. So senior year, because I was a transfer student. So senior year UCLA finals, I can't even think straight because this now this is driving me nuts. So I text him. I wasn't blocked on text. He texted me back right away. That's when I started questioning. Oh, I just need to know what happened because it's driving me crazy. I don't even want to talk to you further. I understand if you don't want to talk to me, what happened? So that's when he told me this entire story. And I was like, shut up. Are you serious right now? What do you mean? And he's going on about, oh, you know what? I promised your brother. I gave your brother my word. I would never speak to you again. That's how he opened it, actually. And then he proceeded to tell me the whole freaking weird trail of gossip and rumors. And I was just like, maybe I dodged a bullet because if this is happening so early, what the hell? You is totally this? did. Well, he, totally did. he listened. And that's true. He, listened. he doesn't value me. I was nobody to him. All of that. That was just such nonsense that I don't know. But the sad thing for me is that this was four years ago. And I've never connected with anyone in that way since then. And I use him as an anchor when I meet somebody new, just because nothing has surpassed that connection. And I don't know. It is. No, I got to say, there is something special when you vomit and somebody does something (laughs) nice for you. That is sort of a standard. It is. Yeah. I mean, do you have a vomit story, Lenya? But uh, it was with a female friend. (laughs) She held my hair. really long hair. You never knew me with really long hair, Alex. No, I never did. I spent my 30th birthday on a sidewalk laying down outside the Lexington, which is, it was like a lesbian bar in the nineties in San Francisco. And we, a bunch of us were drinking, bar hopping, whatever. And I just got very drunk. And I just remember the sidewalk was so comfortable. So I just laid down there. So, and then I threw up and then Eric took care of me all the way home. And I was like, see, now that's love. You can throw up all over a person. And that's just only one of many vomit stories that I actually have. I only have one, like, I think two. One though, in Australia, this is very common though. I had my drink spiked and it was lucky for me, my friends found me before whoever it was that spiked my drink and put me in a taxi where I vomited all over the taxi. And then I got home and I don't even, this is so weird. I got home. I remember nothing. What I remember is waking up with my entire, like in my bed with all like my sheets and everything full of vomit. And I was like green. And so I call in to work, but I was like working for this horrible person. And they were like, you have to come in. So I came in and then they looked at me and they were like, okay, you can go. (laughs) And I told them the truth. I said, I went out and I think my drink was spiked and I wanted to go to the police, but they didn't, they were like, oh, they thought I was like lying. And then afterwards I did go to the police, but I get home and I'm I'm hanging out. I'm like, like on the couch, my neighbor from above me comes down to tell me that I was so drunk that I was knocking on his door. He came to the door and <laughs> he was like, Lenya, are you okay? And I'm like, ah! 
and he put he brought me back down put me in my bed oh, oh my god. god oh my god that's not very <laughs> I'm like oh my god this is a, this was an older gay man he would have been like 60 right and yes we were really good friends and would have coffee every sunday but like i was at his house drunk it was so embarrassing anyway that's my big vomit story yeah. That, but it's so common in Australia for men to, to spike, spike drinks. drinks. Yeah. At, at that time, they w- it was just happening all the time. That's the thing, like, where you sort of think about, we're d- like, Sarah, we should be convincing you not to be rageful. We shouldn't be giving her more reasons to be rageful. <laughs> you know what? To be fair, Sarah, I was in a gay bar, so I don't know who spiked my drink. I can't say it was a guy. Or maybe it was a serial roofier who went yeah. to gay bars because he'd be like, nobody's going to suspect me <laughs> drunk all the women in this club. But it's so, but you know, what's hard though. It's like you date, like it's so hard. Like the more I'm always really careful, the older I get, the more likely I'm, I mean, even Lenya and I'll do it like we'll roll our eyes and make fun of our partners or whatever, you know, because there's maleness that you start to see after many years. And I always want to be careful because I don't want, it's not that they're not truisms, but I want it. I don't want to pass that on to younger people. Like you need to figure out those truisms on your own. When I'm like, oh, Eric is being such a guy, but he like he forgets everything. I, you know, what I mean, I can go the, the list could start, but I don't. But he's still it, a good guy. Yeah, and like somebody who it's interesting. My cousin Gabriella, who's an artist, Lenya knows. I love my cousin. her. And we were both talking about our partners, and really talking about they allow us. And not allow, I don't mean allow, permit us. I mean, but in the relationship, we, they enable us, I guess is the better word, to just be the women we want to be. And it's a really great, and I think Shane is very much that man. He has to be. (laughs) (laughs) But is it? But the thing is understanding that like, you know, the idea it's that's kind of special and it's not always easy to find though. Right. It's like saying like you saying, Oh, look, I want to find a man who, you know, is going to have these values and have these values and also give me the freedom. And I don't, again, I don't mean allow because you would allow him the same freedoms. Right. But it's that same concept of, I am such an independent person that I can't, I'm very rarely talk with the word we, and neither does Lenya. And there's mm. a, and it's a special kind of partner who's really comfortable with a partner who still uses the word I. And that's, and when you find somebody like that's yeah. somebody to hang on to, because like, I'm so rarely the Royal we, and I often find it and I don't ask permission you know, if I, and neither does Lenya, like permission from a partner. I'd rather ask for forgiveness. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. But it's also that I'm also just 
me. Like it's, you only get one life. So you have to do you and there's just too much I want to do. Do you know what I mean? Like the relationship is a part of it. It's a very important part of it, but it's like one of many important parts. Does that make sense? And so it really is even just this idea of Eric supports, even in this podcast, right? Like doing this podcast, both Shane and Eric have been really supportive of us doing this, but neither want to be on it. Yeah, they neither of them will be on it, but they're both supportive in the sense that we're putting our money into this that would maybe go into other things. And neither of us ask. We both because we both made the decision in a minute and bought the mics while we were still on the same Zoom call. So it isn't like we said we need to talk with our partners mm-hmm. and get back to you. We were both like, no, we're both informing our partners while well, we're taking on this other thing. And they're great and they're supportive because that's who we are. And you'll find somebody, you will find somebody who will clean up the vomit out of your shoe. Yep. (laughs) And also your hair and also hold your hair (laughs) and also support you in your comedy and everything and your therapy and what you want to do. I mean, you're really young. So, I mean, like it's, and I hate when people say, oh, you're so young, it'll change. But like, with science the way it is today, you're going to live to 100. I married Shane. I was in my early 40s. Yeah. So that's She just still goes. thinks that's old because when she was telling a story earlier, she said, you know, like 50, like it was <laughs> like old, like she was, and I wanted to be like, you know, we're both over 50, right, Sarah? Well, remember when you looked at me and you said, you want to be at the beginning of your career? I haven't even started my career. I think at, when I say 50, I'm thinking like established, I have money to give an extra human being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that you very quickly learn, like part of it is I am like in the middle of at least one of my careers, Mm -hmm. but I've had many careers because even when you go in, even when I went into law school and Sarah, I told you this, like when I went into law school, I had the idea that I was going to have one kind of life. It was by my second year in law school, I was like, well, that life is not going to work. And I still then just did something else. And how many lives have you had, Lenya? Oh, my God. I was a librarian when I came out of school. Yeah. I mean, but I have to say that career serves me well now. But yeah. And Lenya has an adult son. I have an adult son that you could probably date. (laughs) That's totally true, except he's in Australia. He's, he's in Australia, he, and, and, and he's so focused at the moment. He's not doing any. He's, like, very focused on his career. But he is a Australian ninja warrior. He's 28. Oh, wow. I can't, like, this saying that makes me sick because he's going to be 30 soon, you know? Like, that's, like, sickening. You're like old. I don't know what the hell you are doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't feel like I should have a child that old. I don't either. I, I if like I, I hadn't met him, I would think you were lying. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should have a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old or maybe even a 12. <laughs> Not that old. Not almost 30. But do you want a 12-year-old in the house again? You know, it's funny you should say that. I have had, for the last maybe six months, I've had this like reoccurring dream that comes in and out where we adopt, but Shane doesn't want to adopt, where we adopt a like a 12 or 13 year old 
because it's just something like I keep feeling like I have all this love to give, but I feel like, oh, no, it's okay because I'll be a grandmother soon or something like that. You know what I mean? But there's been this reoccurring dream in the back of my head for almost about six or seven months. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I made like an off comment, would you, it's a shame, would you ever consider, you know, adopting? He was like, no. (laughs) Sarah, do you want to be a mom? You know, it's a big question. I don't know. I used to say, yeah, I want to have five kids. But now that I've, now that I have a little bit more sense than I did yesterday, and I (laughs) still have sense to gain tomorrow, my answer is not no or yes. It's simply, I don't know. (laughs) I think that's a great place. I mean, that's like a great place to be. Yeah. You know, did Shane ever want kids? No, no. He has a bonus child. He doesn't need one. He's a, oh, he has a bonus child. So he doesn't anyone. Yeah, no, yeah. but I mean, you know, to be honest and, and Kadeem knows this, so I'm not like talking out of turn or anything, but to be honest, I didn't want children at all. Kadeem was a lovely surprise. You know what I mean? So I'm very fortunate because he's a good kid, but if he wasn't a good kid, God knows I probably would have been like, Ugh. you know, having dogs are a lot more rewarding. Just letting you know. <laughs> So I got to say, well, yeah, I mean, I've never, come on, you have, you've had Bo, you've had, have hair. I know. I love having dogs and dogs are a lot of responsibility that even then. So, you know, we had a dog, we just lost a dog a few weeks ago and Harry's definitely lonely. And so I'm starting to sort of, I'm trying to put it in the universe. If, if a dog comes my way, I won't turn it away. But I was like, I'm pet finder and I'm looking at dogs and I was like, oh my God, there's so much fucking responsibility. I don't want to be like, I am still eschewing. I don't want more responsibility. I want less responsibility. I want to puke up in a closet. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I don't really, I mean, I have to tell you, Sarah, I don't, I listened to that story and here's what was interesting is that I felt fear for you, which makes me know that I'm, an adult. Like I have finally moved from that's so exciting or that's only going to be funny to I felt the danger of that moment when I wouldn't have felt any danger at all 15 years ago. Right. So like partly I've matured, but then a part of me is like sad and because those days are so far gone for me. Like those days, not only am I not planning on dating like any, like anytime soon or dating like in that way anytime soon just can't although I imagine I'll drink and get sick again that'll probably happen again but of course I can't wait for us to do it yeah (laughs) but it's not going to be the same way because at 50 you sort of be like I don't care I'll just vomit all over the people's sheets because I do have some money I am established I'll be like I'll buy you new fucking sheets I'm sorry I threw up all over them I don't (laughs) care like I won't have that same because that panic that you had in the bathroom, that's something so special to your 20s that yeah. doesn't happen again. Like that panic, like I've ruined a relationship. Yeah. I'm never going to be loved. He doesn't have any friggin' like something I can like wash and hide. Like I just have to say like those kinds of bathroom moments in a man's bathroom <laughs> that's never as clean as any bath. Like. Never oh, unless you're un- unless you're Shane, because then you have the cleanest bathroom in the world, and then you, if you puke, then you actually are worried. <laughs> <laughs> you're like shit. <laughs> My husband is 
the cleanest. And I think this is one of the things that I loved about him when I met him. He's just the, the most put together, like even had fashion sense when we met. I've told you the story that when I met Eric the first time, he was wearing a pink denim jacket. No, you didn't tell me. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) And he was wearing it ironically. He wasn't wearing it, but it isn't like he had a sign saying I'm wearing this ironically, (laughs) but it, but yeah. Wow. He needed Um, a lot of help. And I still fall in love with him. Yeah. Well, he still needs help. He wears Crocs. Yes, he does. But that's pandemic. (laughs) It is like that's pandemic wear. Amazing. The pandemic has just been the funniest. He's wearing plastic pants right now. No. He's wearing sweatpants that are like the nylon, like the ballet pants, the the nylon. So he makes like a diaper noise when he walks (laughs) from the living room to the kitchen. Sarah, see, this is what being in a relationship <laughs> is, is. You don't want to be in a relationship. Not now, this no. Is, this I is don't. it. Crocs and diaper pants. Like <laughs> that. Yeah, doesn't that sound like the ultimate of boring? Oh, it's so not boring. I will challenge you on that. There is nothing boring about that. Like when you never know what the next outfit is going to look like, <laughs> it's actually an adventure beyond okay. the pale. Well, I don't, you need to do an Instagram of just his outfits every morning when he you comes out of the room. You know, it's really interesting when we were talking about relationships and everything, Sarah, I, I was remembering something. Uh, somebody uh, tried to slide into my direct messages on Instagram and I, I was shocked and I was like, I'm married. And they're like, you're married. There's no man on your Instagram. We never see anybody. And I didn't realize until I started looking I think it's been about three years since Shane's been on my Instagram. And here I am getting offended that people don't know that I'm married. That is crazy. Yeah. people. Well, yeah. But that's because you're independent and you don't give up. My Instagram is all about me working out. Right. You know, so it's totally true. (laughs) Sarah, what are your dreams for the rest of this year? Ooh. My dreams. Okay. Okay. Comedy. I think that I want to, I was always so worried about relationships and like, why can't I be in one? Why can't I find one? And the funny thing is I'm doing all the things that I wouldn't be able to do if I was in a relationship. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I have a lot of freedom right now, aside from like the trying to run away from the Pakistani community. Which I've been doing that. I'm, I've been posting just fine. I'm surviving. I don't have to consider another human being right now. So I'm channeling the freedom from that into the way that I want to fill that void that I've, I made it such a big void in my own head. I want to fill that with getting better at comedy. So I'm trying to just hit as many open mics as possible and audit myself, which is so uncomfortable, but as uncomfortable as it is, that's also how rewarding it is because you actually learn something and then you get to pivot and adjust and do better the next time and then see the results. It's an audit straight up. So it's so fantastic. Can you tell us where people can come see you, where you tend to do it? When's your next open mic night? So they're random. I I can't give any locations. The reason being is because my home comedy club, which is the West Side Comedy Theater, has been closed throughout the entire pandemic. Okay. There's no date when it will be open. And as far as other 
open mics. They're totally random locations. Any shows that I book, I'm, there's none right now. And if there are in the future, it's not any set location. Do you, give it, do you give it out on Instagram or Twitter? I do give it out on Instagram, yes. Tell everybody your handles. Okay, so my handle is Sarah Khan Comedy. So you spell it like S-A-R-A-H-K-H-A-N Comedy. Okay, all right, that's awesome. When do you, when are you done with your therapy program? So I honestly, it's going to be a long time. I think it's like a three year, three to four year situation. They keep telling me four, but I'm like, I'm going to squeeze it out and get out. (laughs) You're not ambitious at all. I'm working full time, you know? So they're like, it's going to be five really actually. And I'm like, no, we'll, we'll figure out a way. It's going to be three. You'll have to do, right? And then there'll be therapy hours where you're going to get to do. And, you know, it's so weird because, you know, that's how I met my therapist. I was 29, was quitting the law, could not afford a therapist. And so they gave me a therapy trainee who was just doing her field hours. And she was 29. She had been a lawyer and quit. And the reason she had quit is because her dad had always planned on having this great retirement and hated his job. And the month after he retired, he died. And oh. so as soon as that happened, she quit practice. I think she had practiced like, you know, a year, quit practice and went to school for therapy. And that's when I met her. Wow. And she was my therapist for all the time I was in San Francisco. And then when my mother died or every big place in my life where something major has happened, I have called her and she has been my therapy therapist over the phone. And even when my mom died, she was no longer a therapist. Like she's now has a position at a school, like working with kids, like using her degree, but in a different way. And she's, it's you like, I'll totally take you. But it was really like, I was like, Oh my God, really? You know, because she knew my side of crazy, you know, I mean, she was, and the therapists do really have the power. Like this woman, Tracy changed my life. Like she changed the trajectory of my life for the better. So you're going to do that for people. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even fathom it right now. Cause I'm so in my own crap and I'm like, my life is hard, but big picture wise, Hearing you say that just feels so good because it reminds me of why I'm doing what I want to do. You know, my next step, I do want to throw this in there because I think it's interesting. I've had the same female therapist for five years now. And the conversation with her is completely exhausted. So to move to the next stage of figuring out my trauma and dismantling it a bit, I am going to find a male therapist between his 30s and 40s to now have a, a good relationship with a man so I can get over. The, the intimacy issues that I have with and all of the issues that I have with men in general. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. So brave. Very. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that. I think that's part of my, the question you asked earlier about what are my big dreams for this year? Comedy and figuring out this male issue. <laughs> all right. Well, here's to figuring out the male issue. And when you figure out the male issue, actually you can let me, I still have male issues. And me. <laughs> I mean, I'll that's just... Right. I might come out hating them more. <laughs> you actually might come out thinking that maybe men aren't the one that I like. And maybe I'm like non-binary or asexual yeah. or gay or whatever. 
Maybe. It's totally true. Or you might really come out and say, well, I there's just a certain type of man that I don't like. But then you start to search for all different other kinds. Like your eyes open up that what you're attracted to and what you like are two different things. Because often you're, mm. that's also that whole other thing to unknot. Yep. You yeah. know? So much to look forward to. Wow. I'm yeah. Sure. Well, all right now. So on that note, no, I'm so glad I'm no longer in my twenties. Like this just <laughs> sounds so hard. Like <laughs> it's growing things, but not physically, mentally. And this hurts much more than my period did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so true, but I have to say, it's really a testament to you to be so brave and like looking at all of it really head on mm-hmm. because you have several things compounded because of your family situation, because of the community that you've grown up in, but you're also just facing what most American kids face in their twenties. And the thing is you just sort of saying, I'm going to shine a light on it. It's pretty impressive because I think a lot of people spend their twenties running from it a little rather than shining a light on it. Only to have to face it in their thirties. So you're very, you're being really proactive. Your thirties will probably be much more fun than most people. It's true. When did your twenties come home to roost for you, Lanya? Oh, I was a mother at 25. Oh, that's right. See, the thing is Lanya and I always feel like we're so alike in so many ways, but then this whole thing of married at 17, kid at 25. Mm Mm-hmm. Very different. Like you were adulting at 25. Yep. But, you know, I kind of regressed in my like late 30s and went clubbing and was always on drugs. And so, you know, it it, it all manifests itself in ways later. So I had to come to terms with the fact that because I didn't have fun, I I then tried to have fun later. But it was not great because I was a mother and, you know, and no, there's no right way to do your life. It's just your own fucked up life. Yes. <laughs> and I had to do it my way. Yeah, which is what everybody has to do. It's like the journey. I mean, that's what makes that's always what makes me so excited about this podcast. It always makes me so excited for people to share stories because it is always, it's always also the more fucked up way is the more interesting way. Mm-hmm. Always. So never be afraid of that. Like always. My thing is always go left. (laughs) That is just always. When given a choice, just go left. Do not go straight. Everybody, make sure you listen to our episodes, Women Bridging the Gap, wherever you find your podcasts. We're on social media, Women Bridging the Gap on Instagram. We have a Facebook group. And you can find us on our website, womenbridgingthegap.com. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, thank you.